Hello, welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Historical Insanities Doing the Same Thing Over Again. The date is April 2023, and my name is Belisarius Avis. Quote Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Unquote. Well, that witticism, let's call it the Einstein insanity, is usually attributed to Albert Einstein. Though probably the Matthew effect, a tendency of individuals to accrue social or economic success in proportion to their initial level of popularity, friends and wealth, etc., may be operating here. It is undeniable that this sort of clever, memorable one-liner Einstein himself may have tossed off, but we can't be certain he actually said it. And where we can attribute directly to somebody, life is like a wheel. Sooner or later, it always comes around to where you started again, Stephen King. But is life like a wheel? If you had asked an English nobleman in 1385 which ruling family would possess the crown a hundred years later, the first answer would probably have been Plantagenet. Richard II, king in 1385, was a Plantagenet, and one had to go back over 250 years to the Norman kings, to find another house ruling over England. Some clever fellow might have said Lancaster, given the power wielded by John of Gaunt in the late 14th century. There were Percy's and Arundel's as well, but the one name that would not have come up in 1385 would be Tudor. It took the War of the Roses to eliminate so many peers that only then could a grandson of Owen Tudor assume the throne and create one of the greatest dynasties in British history. As the fictional Daenerys Targaryen of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, partially based on the War of the Roses, stated, Lannister, Targaryen, Baratheon, Stark, Tyrell, they're all just spokes on a wheel. This one's on top, that one's on top, and on and on it spins, crushing those on the ground. And then she concludes with determination, I'm not going to stop the wheel. I'm going to break the wheel. Now, one could replace the fictional houses in Martin's work with Lancaster, Plantagenet, Percy, Neville, York, and Beaufort, and then change the quote to Henry VII Tudor. And it actually still kind of works. Well, the Tudors did not precisely break the wheel. They were actually from the Lancastrian side of things, but they did indeed represent something new. And nor would I say that history itself is precisely like a wheel, more like a jagged road that provides strange curves along the way. History is not, however, an arc constantly bending towards the better, as progressive historians would have us believe. Things are Things are definitely and completely much better today for the average person than for the peasant living during Tudor times, infinitely better. But that is as much a virtue of capitalism as any unseen deterministic force in the fever dreams of progressive historians. We also have rulers putting, well, millions of humans into ovens. And as should be noted in Putin's Russia, the arc can bend backwards as it did in the mid-20th century. What history does provide, as much as a wheel, is a redo, an echo, a sense of doing the same thing over again. 
And as with the apocryphal Einstein quote, expecting a different outcome. Now, some of these outcomes can be, well, frankly, almost comical. As with the Democratic Party of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, always believing that William Jennings Bryan would happen if given just one more chance. It also can turn terrible as we look at redos in war. We begin with the Plantagenets, which we had mentioned earlier. So let's go to a historical occurrence near contemporary to their dynasty. The Crusades get a lot of press, and rightly so. The movement dominated European and Near Eastern Asian history for the better part of 250 years. Yet, out of roughly eight Crusades, only the first was fundamentally successful, and in that case, it was a near thing. The Christians managed to carve out four territories during the Crusades, but as much due to the errors of their opponents as to their own intelligence and valor. After the First Crusade, the success of the endeavor was, well, checkered. In the Third Crusade, Richard I of England managed to take the city of Acre, which was to last for another hundred years in the Christian possession. The Sixth Crusade saw Emperor Frederick II regain territory, and the Barons' Crusade did enlarge the Kingdom of Jerusalem for a time. Still, for the most part, many were failures, and none were enlarging upon the conquests of the First Crusade. The Fourth Crusade never even reached the Holy Land, instead sacking Constantinople instead. And yet, the ardor to go on crusade did not ebb until the death of Louis the Ninth of France in the Eighth Crusade. And that occurred not even in the Holy Land, but around the city of Tunis in modern-day Tunisia in North Africa. Louis's first crusade, the one called the Seventh, was fought, well, not again in the Holy Land, but rather in Egypt. And despite some victories, Louis was later thrown out. So why would so many Europeans keep trying after the failures of the Second, the Third, the Fourth, and the Fifth Crusades? Part of it was religious ardor. In the Second and the Third, there was an element of, well, glory-seeking, especially on the part of Richard. But part of it was coveting the lands held by the Arabs and the Turks. They felt that this time it would be different. Just one more crusade and we're going to throw them out and carve out a glorious kingdom. But the problems were obvious. A crusading army would first have to conquer their bases and then rely on supplies shipped all the way from Europe, mostly Italy. When a crusader was killed, they would have to be a replacement all the way from Europe. Whereas for the Turks and the Arabs, manpower was right there at hand. And given the time frame, the differentiations in religion, by the time that the Crusades had entered the Holy Land, Islamic rule at that point had been around for three to four centuries. It wasn't as if Islam was something relatively new to these lands. So let's shift from the Crusades back to England. I started this with the English War of the Roses, but before England tore itself apart, they ruled over a large part of France, established primarily through three battles ranging from the mid-1300s to the early 1400s. The first was at Crusade, won by Edward III, partly due to English longbowmen. During the height of the battle, 
the French launched a cavalry charge. And in this cavalry charge, though the French men atop their horses was relatively well armored, the horses were not. But even at Crissay, this was disordered by its impromptu nature and having to force its way through the fleeing Italians who had already been dispersed. There was muddy ground and the horses had to charge uphill and get over pits dug by the English. And the attack was further broken up by the heavy and effective shooting from the English archers, which caused many casualties. Now, remember, this is the mid-1300s. Ten years later... At the Battle of Patois, Edward's son, also Edward, better known as the Black Prince, won another victory. As was noted by chroniclers, one attack resulted in heavy casualties when the English realized the French horses mainly were only armored on their four quarters. The English archers would shoot into the horses' unprotected hindquarters. The French cavalry took heavy casualties and withdrew. Though the French greatly outnumbered the English Gascon force overall and had an even more lopsided advantage in cavalry, the English still won. And uniquely at this battle, the French king, John, was actually captured and later had to be ransomed back to his own kingdom. So once again, cavalry charged unarmored horses into the flurry of English longbows. Now, one could say, okay, this was just 10 years later. So, between the battles of Crissay with Edward III and his son at Patois, but 10 years. So, we could say the French didn't learn anything. But let's go even 60 years after that, at the Battle of Agincourt, where Edward III's great-grandson, Henry V, did the exact same thing. The French cavalry, despite being disorganized and not at full numbers, charged toward the longbowmen, it was a disastrous attempt. The French knights could not outflank the longbowmen because very wisely Henry V had set it up in a narrow field and they could not charge through the array of sharpened stakes that protected the archers. One theory is that for the longbowmen's main influence on the battle was injuries to horses, which at this point were still only armored on the head. For over a half century, English victories came not just because of the longbow, but because the French believed in cavalry attacks against such weapons, riding ill-armored mounts. The French eventually won the Hundred Years' War for, well, actually some of the same reasons as the Crusades. The size of France, which had nearly four times the population of England, was very difficult to hold, and the English were, after all, a foreign power. It should have been inevitable, but the inability of the French to learn from their errors prolonged the bloodshed. Now let's take another one of those giant leaps in history. We're going to jump across the Atlantic and go, well, almost 200 years later. We're going to talk about the American Civil War. Now northern generals fighting in the east set a pattern in the American Civil War. They would march south from Washington into Virginia, get beaten, and then march back to Washington, beaten and bedraggled. This was the pattern set by generals, beginning with McDowell, but we're going to range to McDowell, to McClellan, Pope, Burnside, and Fighting Joe Hooker. They all followed this example. So it was when U.S. Grant, 
also beaten in Virginia in 1864 in the Battle of the Wilderness, broke this trend by, after getting beaten, marching further south after his defeat. Now, it took the northern generals three years to learn, but what Grant knew was that after every battle, the north could replace the fallen troops, but the south could not. Now, war is, war is horrific, regardless of the size and scale, and none was more significant than World War II. But for me, World War I always seemed the worst. There was no liberation of Europe, no ending of Nazi brutalities or stopping Japanese imperial atrocities. It was just a group of nations with grudges settling their centuries-long animosity over the bodies of tens of millions of young men. And if all of this wasn't bad enough, I give you the Battle of the Somme, something I've talked about before. In the slaughter on the Western Front, insanity ruled, and the Somme was an example of that. The Somme was a British infantry assault on a still impregnable German position that followed a week-long artillery bombardment. The British believed that if they just bombed the Germans enough, it would create the gap that would lead to a breakthrough and an end of the great stalemate on the Western Front. Unfortunately, that did not work out. Nearly 60,000 British casualties, including 20,000 killed, occurred on the first day. The offensive gradually deteriorated into a battle of attrition hampered by torrential rains in October that made the muddy battlefield impassable. By the time it was abandoned, the Allies had advanced only five miles, and the staggering losses included 650,000 German casualties, 420,000 British, and 195,000 French. The battle became a metaphor for feudal and indiscriminate slaughter. But this is what makes it even worse. If this was not horrific enough, it came after the Battle of Verdun. Now that battle began approximately four to five months before the Battle of the Somme. Only in this case, it was initiated by the other side, by the German side. The Battle of Verdun began on February 21st, 1916, when the German army began pounding the forts and trenches with massive artillery fire. 1,200 guns smashed the French positions. And just as in the Somme, there was some early German progress, but it was at a fearful cost and soon led to attrition. Though the French were dazed, they were not destroyed. And therefore, again, the breakout did not happen. Despite heavy shelling, the French infantrymen clung to their positions and the Germans could not advance further. At Verdun, both sides suffered nearly 300,000 casualties. And so, when the British launched their offensive on the Somme some months later, they did the exact same thing. The tactics did not fundamentally change with what had failed the Germans four months earlier. Again, insanity, doing the same thing again, but expecting a different outcome. Now, I, earlier I had mentioned William Jennings Bryan. This Nebraskan was an American lawyer, an orator, and a politician. In 1896, he emerged as the dominant force in the Democratic Party, and he ran for president as the Democratic Party nominee three times. 
1896, 1900, and again in 1908. He served in the House of Representatives from 1891 to 1895 and later as the Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson. Because of his faith in the wisdom of the ordinary people, or so it was said, Bryan was often called the Great Commoner, and because of his rhetorical power and early fame as the youngest presidential candidate, the Boy Orator. The first election in which Jennings lost was to William McKinley in 1896. It was a close thing, though, very close. And in fact, during the election process itself, through all of his speeches and all of his efforts, William Jennings Bryan literally exhausted himself. It was just by a 4.3% margin in the popular vote and only 100 electoral votes. So this was a near thing. Now, when Jennings tried again four years later, the popular vote barely budged, but the electoral votes got worse. He lost to McKinley this time by 150 electoral votes. So, the same people who voted for him in 1896 voted for him again in 1900. And again, remember, it was the same rematch. It was McKinley versus Bryan. Now, the Democrats sat out Bryan in 1904, which was probably a good thing because the uber-popular Teddy Roosevelt won the popular vote by almost 20 points. Now, a little side note here. Shortly after winning his second uh, term, McKinley was shot and assassinated, and therefore Teddy Roosevelt became president. Um, and that is, is why he was running in 1904 on his own right. And as is just stated, he won it resoundingly. But they were game again in 1908, the Democrats were. Yes, Bryan was up again, only this time a different opponent. Not McKinley, but in this case, William Taft. Different election, same result. 7% margin in the popular vote, with Taft getting 321 electoral votes over Bryan's 162. So in some regards, the popular vote was a little bit similar to 1900, but the electoral votes were almost exactly the same. Third time in, third time loser. In an Atlantic article by Jacob Stern, the author calls Bryan a superstar loser, lobbing him into contemporary governor territory with two-time losers Stacey Abrams and Robert Francis Beto O'Rourke. I love that. Superstar loser. But it's hard to compare Bryan to more contemporary people like Abrams and O'Rourke. Governor races are different. Stakes are, well, a bit lower, in some ways maybe not, than the presidency. And we are talking not twice, but three times. I have to chalk up Bryan's continual hold on the Democratic Party during the period from 1896 to 1912 as a combination of his undoubted charisma, exemplified as the leading orator of his day. The solid lack of substitute, note the dismal 1904 thrashing by Roosevelt, and if you actually want to know who lost to TR, you might be a bigger history geek than I. But here it is. It was the immortal Alton Parker, by the way. So in other words, there wasn't really much of a, of an, of a substitute to Bryan during that period of time. And that in his third loss, he was facing a different opponent. Okay, concluded the Democrats. He couldn't beat a McKinley, but he could probably beat a Taft, or so they hoped. Now, of these qualities of Bryan, the charisma, a lack of solid alternatives, and different opponents... 
does not really explain the advent of Adlai Stevenson and the 1950s elections. Stevenson was a politician and diplomat who was the United States ambassador to the United Nations from 1961 until he died in 1965. He served as the 31st governor of Illinois from 1949 to 1953 and later was the Democratic nominee for the President of the United States in 1952 and 1956 and lost both elections to Dwight D. Eisenhower. Now, Stevenson was sort of unique. He was the grandson of a vice president of the same name who served in that office under Grover Cleveland. And anyone who drives to the southwest of the city of Chicago knows the name Stevenson. Because of his hold with a tight-knit group of liberals in the party, that was one of the explanations for, for why Stevenson was able to try again in 1956, though he almost lost in the primaries to a more conservative senator from Tennessee. Now, one of the thoughts was, is, is that there was speculation that Eisenhower's 1955 heart attack might sideline him. So, given that, and given this tight-knit group of liberals who love Stevenson, let's give him another shot. However, much to the consternation of the Democratic Party, Eisenhower fully recovered, received the GOP nomination unopposed, and, heart attack or not, Eisenhower won easily, carrying, are you ready for this, 457 electoral votes to Stevenson's paltry 73. And this total only added to Eisenhower's previous win in 1952, Stevenson not only lost badly, in both elections he ceded his home state of Illinois as well. Yes, back in those days, the state of Illinois was in play for the GOP. Probably not so much today. Now would be a good time to pull out a quote from George Santayana. For those history or philosophy geeks among us, Santayana was known as a Spanish and American philosopher, essayist, and poet. He was a novelist who lived in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was born in Spain, but Santayana was raised and educated in the U.S. from age 8 and identified as an American. But to most others, he is the man who said, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Yet, frequent listeners to a few of these podcasts will know that I often condemn the concept of simply learning the past. Indeed, the trick is knowing which lessons to learn. For example, Louis XI, King of France, and not really affectionately known as the Spider King, saw that part of the issue with losing to the English in those wars that I had mentioned before, remember I'd mentioned that they had lost at Crissay, Potois, and Agincourt, well, Louis came after that group, and he learned two lessons. One, do not ride unarmored horses into flurries of arrows. That's a pretty good lesson, but rather something even more profound. It was the divisions within France that all of these guys, from Edward III to Henry V, were able to exploit. Early on, the English enjoyed an alliance, for example, with the powerful Dukes of Burgundy, Louis would not allow these sorts of alliances to form and did everything he could to sow animosity among the English. Again, it wasn't just learning from the past. It was learning the right lessons from the past. 
Another example, alternatively, the French took the lesson of World War I, which we had talked about earlier, were entrenched, fortifications were paramount, and built even larger and more complex fixed lines in the guise of the Maginot Line. The German Wehrmacht also saw the issues with entrenched fortifications and developed their mobility through the Blitzkrieg to neutralized fixed emplacements. They simply rolled around the line. And just as with political issues facing the Democrats of 1900 and 1908, today's GOP is considering nominating a candidate who has already lost once. To his ardent supporters, they are ready to mount their unarmored steeds and ride hard, right into a volley of arrows. This time may be different, but history says otherwise. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. I really hope you check out all of our podcasts. We have over 160 of them, and we cover all continents, all time frames, all nations, all cultures. Check us out. This is Bell Avis. Thanks again.